You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. We gotta live on science alone. Welcome to Unbiased Science, where we bring scientific method to the madness. We're your hosts, Dr. Jessica Steyer. And Dr. Andrea Love. So if you're listening to this, um, it's after Thanksgiving. Um, and if you listened to our pod last week, uh, basically we we did an overview or gave an update on the latest state of COVID-19, uh, the latest statistics and trends. And I hope that we were able to successfully convince you to stay home for the holidays this year. Um, I know that it, you know, it's a bummer for everyone, uh, but certainly things are really out of control now with regard to uncontrolled transmission. Uh, and so definitely the, the safe place to be is at home. Uh, Andrew, did you want to add anything? Recapping. No, I think you. I think yeah. you covered it. I hope everybody um, adhered to public safety guidelines um, and and had a quiet and intimate um, at home Thanksgiving this year. So before we dive into today's episode, and um, just a heads up, this episode <laughs> um, is something that Andrea and I get fired up about. Uh, more on that in a second. So let's just ease into things. Um, where, Andrea, where is the first place that you'll want to travel once it is safe to do so? So, you know, I think it would probably have to be the trip that uh, we had originally planned for this past May that um, obviously did not happen because we shut down uh, in the U.S. in, in March. Um, so we were planning to go to Africa, um, Botswana, oh South Africa, and, and maybe a couple of other countries. And the goal was to see all the big five uh, animals. And um, I had been saving up my vacation days at my job for about two years to have enough to take like a three, a nice three week long trip there. And of course, now I have all these days saved up that I'm going to lose before the end of the year. Oh that I my gosh. Oh, I hope they consider rolling them over. Um, yeah, and oh, I think they'll, they'll roll a few over, but, um, you know, I took, I took a few days off for some mental health. Um, but you know, obviously we're not, we're not really able to go, to go anywhere exciting. So right. yeah, Africa. Oh my is gonna be gosh. Oh, God. How do I follow that? I mean, that that's such an incredible answer. And oh, that really is such a bummer. That would have been so great. And, and, you know, knowing you now, even though you have all these vacation days saved up, and you I guess you could potentially use them now. How can you because I right. feel like you're working more than ever. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> Um, okay. So my answer is, well, I was going to say similar, similar in that I also had a vacation planned, uh, for last year for, uh, April, uh, but the, the destination is very different than yours. We were planning on going to North Carolina. There's this beautiful property on a farm, um, in the mountains, and it was just going to be a, an opportunity to, to disconnect and, my hubby's from California, as you know, Andrea, and so he misses the mountains, and so it was going to be a nice little family getaway, Aww, little mountain trip. But anyway, so relaxing. 
<laughs> and yet here we are in the total and utter chaos of 2020. Uh, um, but I don't know. I feel like all of this crazy, <clears throat> excuse me, craziness, maybe it'll make everything more sweet next year when we actually get to gather, be with friends, travel. I don't know. I'm I hope so. I hope so. It's it's been a it's been a rough year, I think, for everybody, for sure. For sure. For sure. So, okay. All right, guys. So today we are going to debunk vaccine myths. And you guys should know that this was actually the impetus behind starting. This is what got Andrea and I talking about starting a podcast. Um, and and so this is really something that's near and dear to our, our hearts, something that we, uh, on a daily basis, you and I, we're, <laughs> we're battling, we're really putting out, you know, a pseudoscience files. Fires and people, there's so much mis- misinformation swirling. So really, there are so many myths that we're going to have to break this episode up into at least two episodes. But today, we're going to get started. Um, if you recall, in one of our earlier episodes, we kind of recapped the importance of vaccines in general. And and I always say, you know, with a background in, in public health, um, it, it's so much easier to measure the presence of disease than the absence of it. And so vaccines have done such an incredible job of preventing disease, you know, but it's so difficult to measure that, you know, it's an absence of disease. And that that's, that's can be hard to quantify and also hard for people to really wrap their minds around. Um, another public health ism that I always say is an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Um, and really the, the cost of these vaccines just pales into comparison. Uh, you know, when, when you think about what the actual disease is that they're preventing cause, uh, debilitating disease, disability, and of course, death. Um, a reminder that according to the World Health Organization, immunizations currently prevent uh, between two to three million deaths every year. That's our best estimate. And really, you know, people, we, we had a whole episode dedicated to this and people always want to know, you know, how do you bolster your immune system? And I know, Andrea, you and I always joke about this. The answer, the easiest answer is aside from, of course, eating healthy, sleeping, taking care of yourself, is vaccines. Get yourself vaccinated. Get your children vaccinated. So um, I'll just set the stage here with a little bit of a, um, I don't know if it's a case study or just present some statistics and then we'll dive into our first myth. Uh, but let's let's talk about the measles vaccine. And um, as I'm sure you guys all know, there have been pockets of uh, mainly affluent communities across our country where we've seen a vaccine hesitancy and refusal to vaccinate. And so, you know, for a while there, we had measles really well under control. Uh, And then we had dips in vaccine uptake. And lo and behold, we're seeing a resurgence of measles. So in 2019, there were uh, just under 1300 individual cases of of, of measles confirmed across 31 states in this country. Of those cases, 128 were so severe that they re- that they required hospitalization, and 61 reported having complications, including pneumonia and, 
encephalitis. Uh, this is the greatest number of cases reported in the U.S. since 1992. And more than 73% of the cases were linked to recent outbreaks in New York, uh, the majority of which were among people who were not vaccinated against measles. Um, and of course, we've, we've seen that measles is more likely to spread and cause outbreaks in the U.S. Uh, communities where, where people are unvaccinated. Sorry, Jess, I was going to say, you know, yeah. that the the point you just made, you know, really underscores the the fact that um, currently vaccine hesitancy or the refusal to get vaccinated is one of the top 10 threats to global health, uh, as established by the World Health Organization. We you know, I, I never thought that that we would be in a situation where um, prevention of disease is now or or the refusal to prevent disease is now a global health threat. That is so important. And I'm so glad that you said that. I, I kind of want to re repeat that for folks. <laughs> the World Health Organization named vaccine hesitancy as one of the top 10 threats to global health. I mean, I that says it all. Um, so so let, let's dive into our first myth. Andrea, do you want to kick this off? Sure. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so the first myth, um, and I'm sure most of you can and know what to expect, is that um, vaccines cause autism. So obviously this is false. Um, and we're going to kind of provide a history of that fallacy, um, as well as some of the, the data that debunks that. But um, Sorry, Jess, were you going to? Yeah, I, I was just going to say, you know, we have a heard from the herd segment, of course. And, and this is one of those things that we have heard from the herd so many times. This is the number one question we get. You know, talk to us about the link between vaccines and autism. And so we're yeah. saying here and now there is absolutely no link. Um, we wanted to kick off this conversation. And Andrea, I'm going to turn it over to you because, as you said, uh, before we kicked off this episode, this really chaps your ass. <laughs> Sorry for blowing up your spot, but it chaps no. mine too. Um, a very, very dear friend of mine has a son who was recently diagnosed with autism. And, and she told me that she, you know, she's told all the time, well, you know, you caused that by, by giving your son the NMR vaccine. And a, I mean, completely, absolutely no basis for that, completely untrue. And B, how dare you? I mean, who, who says that to a mother? Just totally crazy. So, of course, all of this really stemmed from this case study uh, published by Andrew Wakefield. And Andrea, I know you know quite a bit of uh, the history of this. Can you take us through it? Sure. Yeah. So, you know, throughout history, um, you know, obviously the, the history of vaccines is not that long, um, but but there's always been, you know, small contingencies of people that are opposed to vaccines. And, um, you know, prior to to this case study, you know, it, it, a lot of it is is, um, you know, social reasons and things like that. But in 1998, there was a, a case study that was published in The Lancet by a gentleman named Andrew Wakefield. And Andrew Wakefield was a gastroenterological surgeon. Um, and, and The Lancet is an extremely prestigious medical journal. So um, again, case studies, if you guys remember our, our RCT episode, case studies are, are weaker in terms of evidence. Um, but ultimately, in the, the prestige of this journal, he claimed that the MMR vaccine, so the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine, um, was leading to increasing numbers of autistic children uh, in, in England. So 
this obviously has been completely um, debunked over the years. Immediately upon publication of this, the scientific community at large really uh, rose up and um, voiced concerns about the study design, um, the the data itself, and also um, the, the really, really bold claim that this was making. So throughout the years, a lot of research has been done. Um, and with regard to this actual paper, it's been completely discredited. There's been um, procedural errors, ethical violations, financial conflicts of interest, but I think, you know, we're going to do a point by point takedown of that. So the study itself was based on 12 children, 12. That's the sample size. Extremely small. I know, Jess, you can chime in with the biostats. But I mean, there's there's no study in the history of studies that would, you know, uh, hold water using uh, an N of 12. Um, and these children were actually pre-selected and recruited through anti-MMR campaigns, the children that were studied, the the data that was collected from these children actually came from reported observations from the parents. There was no scientific data collection. There was no unbiased data collection here. Um, interestingly, he also deliberately hid data that conflicted with his hypothesis. He was trying to prove um, that MMR vaccine was linked to autism, which, which actually is a very a large scientific study flaw. Typically, we're trying to um, disprove a hypothesis. And he was actually trying to collect data that strengthened his argument. Um, something really interesting with this as well is he was making a claim that nine of these children in the study had autism. Um, but it turns out that only one child in the entire 12 <laughs> actually had regressive autism. Jess, you have something you want to add I, really quick? I'm dying. I'm dying. <laughs> I have to... <laughs> I mean, my gosh, you know, it kills me. And, and I, I love that just total aside that when you introduced him, you said, I think you said gentleman, because I, honestly, you can't even, I can't bring myself to refer to this guy as a physician. This is just, uh, this is so wrong. It's unbelievable. And the ripple effect that this has had um, over the years, as we know, I just, I'm seething. Um, the thing I wanted to mention, and I know, um, sorry, Andrew, if, if you were just about to say this, but, you know, there's always the, the pseudoscientists that we come across. There's always this gotcha moment. And for me, one of the biggest gotcha moments here is that Wakefield had such clear and obvious financial motives for falsifying this paper. Um, he planned to develop and market his own MMR vaccine. There's your gotcha moment. Um, he also planned to develop test kits to diagnose autism-related enter enterocolitis. Uh, and Andrea, I see that you made a note here. Yes, we do have an outline that we use that that's a $44 million a year revenue potential for that test kit. Is that right? Yeah. Wow. Yep. Um, so before he had published, he received the British pound equivalent of hundreds of thousands of dollars from a law firm involved in product liability suits against vaccine ma makers, uh, presumably, of course, to anticipate vaccine related litigation. And all of these financial interests required him to find a link between MMR, between the MMR vaccine and autism um, when there does not exist a link. Yeah, yeah Jess, I mean, the fact that there's all of these financial conflicts of interest that not only, you know, 
are are so flagrant, but that he obviously didn't disclose, right. um, you know, should have raised so many red flags. And thankfully, it did in the scientific community. Um, you know, what's really interesting is that this study was actually um, funded by that those law firms that were involved, because presumably these these twelve families were recruited in in preparation to then file a lawsuit against the vaccine manufacturers. It's it's really quite horrifying. So in in 2004, so this paper came out in 1998, um, a lot of, you know, studies immediately emerged that were trying to debunk this. But in 2004, um, 10 of the 13 authors ret- officially retracted the study. Um, Wakefield himself lost his medical license, so he's no longer able to practice medicine. He actually fled uh, the UK and now lives in Texas um, and still promotes anti-vaccine mentality. Um, And then the paper itself was eventually also retracted from the Lancet outright. Um, In January... Oh, I'm so Go sorry. Ahead. Can I no? just say, he, this is just a, such a random <laughs> fact. He's also dating a supermodel, Elle McPherson. Did I share that with you, Andrew? I am just <laughs> taken aback. This guy should be like hiding in a hole. <laughs> just yeah. cannot believe it. Sorry. Go, no, no, that's to fine. Something that's far fine. more important than that tidbit. <laughs> um. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. In, in January t- 2011, uh, BMJ, which is British Medical Journal, they published a series of investigative articles that demonstrated um, not only the, the flawed study design and the bad science, but the deliberate and complex fraud that Wakefield undertook when he published this case report. And aren't you so frustrated, Andrea? I feel like we've, this has caused, not this that this is something that we shouldn't study, of course, you know. I think it's a good thing to to research, but we have funneled so much time, energy, money, funding, everything into continuing to debunk this because as we know, you know, the damage has been done. So we've diverted thousands, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of research dollars toward this particular issue. We have found no no similar link uh, between autism and um excuse me, between the MMR vaccine and autism. Um, and yeah, yeah, we, we have to continuously, you know, debunk this and continue to do more research. The damage has been done, as we've said. Um, and of course, I don't know, whenever I think anti-vax, I always think of good old Jenny McCarthy, uh, who really, <laughs> you know, the epidemiologist, of course, uh, no, who grabbed <laughs> onto this <laughs> fallacy and she fueled this anti-vax movement and she took it you know beyond just the MMR vaccine uh, the link between MMR and and autism she also claimed you know that all vaccines are problematic all vaccines lead to autism and so now we have spent so much time so many ongoing efforts to educate the general public um, you know to this day and I think we'll we'll be doing this for you know a long time to improve vaccine uptake to the levels that they were before this 
publication. And I think, you know, now, especially with the, with the, you know, the COVID vaccine, um, we're on the brink of releasing a COVID vaccine, which is so great. We need to have people get the vaccine. (laughs) And I feel like we're really (laughs) fighting an uphill battle here. Yeah. And it's really disheartening that there's so many people that, that are prominent, that are celebrities, or they have a large platform and they promote the, this dangerous fallacy. It's certainly not just Jenny McCarthy. There are actually a lot of celebrities out there that would, you know, surprise you, um, that, that promote this or in, in enable it or encourage it. And, um, you know, it's very frustrating from a scientific point of view, but of course, you know, the research continues because, again, even in this day and age, vaccine hesitancy is a top 10 global threat. So we have to make sure that we, you know, add more data to the pile. Um, you know, it's it's really baffling to me that we have this, you know, thousand upon thousands of peer reviewed studies, um, you know, cohort studies, ran, you know, controlled trials, things like that. And and we're still trying to debunk this one little case report. So the largest um, the largest to date study investigating the role of uh, or the l- potential link between the MMR vaccine and autism took place in 2019. And this was conducted in Denmark. Um, they looked at 657,461 children. That is enormous. Um, obviously, far more than the 12 that Andrew Wakefield looked at. <laughs> Um, so they looked at these children. These were children born from between 1999 and 2010. Um, and these, these were followed up, uh, between 2000 and 2013, uh, to, to those children, uh, of an average age of eight, eight and a half years. So in Denmark, the, they received their two dose MMR, the first dose at 15 months, the second dose at age four, uh, before 2008, that was age 12. And that's why those, those children were followed out to 2013. So this study of 657,461 children, um, of those 95% of them received the MMR vaccine. So that's 625,842. That's amazing. It's far more than, than the vaccine um, group vaccinated population that we have in the US. And I'm, I'm a little bit envious of Denmark. But of that entire group of 600, you know, 650,000 plus, um, 6,517 children were diagnosed with autism, um, somewhere between six and seven years of age. And that, that are, that's approximately 1% of the entire group. So when we compared or when the, the researchers compared the vaccinated to the unvaccinated, they identified there was no link between the MMR vaccine and the diagnosis of autism. Interestingly, what they did find was autism was more common among boys or with children that had autistic siblings. So when the researchers then did a secondary analysis um, to look at those individuals, so boys specifically or individuals that had autistic siblings, there was also no link between autism and having gotten the MMR vaccine. And this giant study that was conducted in 2019 was consistent with an additional 2014 review in vaccine that pooled 10 different observational studies and also found no link between MMR and autism. 
So basically debunked. Um, and yet I know we'll, we'll continue to do more research and continue to find no link between these things, uh, b- between the MMR vaccine and autism. And of course, you know, the true causes of autism remain a mystery. Uh, but to discredit this whole autism vaccination link theory, as Andrea said, we've done so many studies. Um, several have now identified symptoms of autism in children well before they receive the MMR vaccine. Uh, Even more recent research provides evidence that autism develops in utero well before a baby is born or, of course, uh, receives vaccinations. Uh, we, we think that autism probably has multiple components, including genetics. Uh, for example, uh, Andrew, you just mentioned that there was a link uh, between, uh, you know, the, the children were more likely to, to be diagnosed with autism if they had uh, a sibling that was also diagnosed with autism. Um, there have also been studies done that have found that if one identical twin had autism, the chance that the second twin had autism was greater than 90%. uh, But with fraternal twins, the chance was less than 10%. So definitely a strong genetic component. Oh, sorry. No, go on. No. <laughs> I was going to say that, that that parameter when you're comparing actual identical twins versus fraternal twins um, is is really striking there. But I think all of this, um, you know, something that needs to be said here is that correlation does not equal causation. So yes. just because two things happen to occur at the same time or around a similar timeline does not mean one causes the other. And this is so problematic with this autism and and this fake autism vaccine link. Um, Autism is generally diagnosed when children are developing, right? You know, young children, usually between four and eight years old, um, that's when those symptoms or those behavioral characteristics associated with autism become most obvious. And it also happens to be the time that they're getting all of their vaccines because we're trying to prevent deadly illnesses as children are growing. Well, Andrew, I think we need to get that printed on a T-shirt. Um, <laughs> correlation does not equal causation. Oh, yes. My. We say oh. that about this and so many other things. Yeah, sorry. There's, go on. there's a really funny website that has a lot of data plots that are unrelated things, but they have really in, uh, correlated um, trend lines. And it's like, you know, numbers of pounds of cheese eaten versus, you know, number of bicycles or something completely absurd, but the lines pretty much overlap. I'll have to dig that up and send it to you. Uh, Please do. Uh, And actually, I'm glad you just said that. Just so you guys know, we are working behind the scenes to optimize our website. And we're hoping that in the near future, um, we'll be able to post uh, links and references to the things that we uh, discuss on every episode. So more to come on that front. Um, Okay, should we move on to our next myth? Yeah, I think we've debunked the fact that autism is not caused by vaccines. Yes. Oh my gosh. If I had the buzzer again this week, Andrea, I would, (laughs) I would do it now, but okay. So the next myth that we are going to debunk is that vaccines cause the diseases they claim to prevent. Um, Andrea, I'm sure you have a lot to say about this um, as an immunologist, but 
maybe can I just kick yeah, things no, off with my absolutely please do. All right. <laughs> so it is impossible to get a disease from a vaccine made with dead or killed bacteria or viruses or just part of the vac- bacteria or virus. And Andrea, you spent a lot of time taking us through the different types of vaccines. Um, and so people should probably go back and listen to, to that episode. But Basically, only those immunizations made from weakened live viruses, also called attenuated vaccines, like the chickenpox, uh, varicella, and MMR vaccines, could possibly make a child develop a mild form of the disease. It's almost mu- it's almost always much less severe than if a child became infected with the disease-causing virus itself. So basically, just to recap, because I um, just jumbled my words, if you're going to develop a mild form of disease from a, from an attenuated vaccine, that's going to be much less severe than if you were to become infected with the disease-causing virus itself. Did I fix that, Andrea? Is that okay? <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, but I, I think just the the point to make there is is that's extremely rare. And right. if, if anyone develops some sort of, you know, um, uh, mild chickenpox reaction, it's it's typically localized to the immunization site and it's also not communicable. Uh, you're not able to transmit that to another individual. Um, it's, it's essentially just having a really potent immune response to the vaccine. Right. The, the risk of actually developing disease disease from vaccination is is minuscule. It's extremely, extremely small. Um, there is one live virus vaccine that does come up when, when we talk about this. It's no longer used in the United States, and that's the oral polio vaccine. Um, and the success of the polio vaccination program has made it possible to replace that live virus vaccine with a killed virus form known as the inactivated polio vaccine. So that change has completely eliminated the possibility of polio disease being caused by immunization in this country. Yeah. And just, I, yeah. I would add there I knew that, you'd have something to that, say. um, <laughs> that <laughs> the, um, the inactivated polio vaccine was actually the predominant one used in the U S the, the oral polio vaccine was used in developing nations because it was very easy to distribute. It was a liquid that you dropped on sugar cubes and then you ate the sugar cube. Um, once we got, um, the rampant spread of polio pretty under control, we were able to replace the oral polio vaccine, um, with the inactivated, the injectable, um, globally. So, um, it's no longer being used anywhere at this point. Oh, that is really incredible science people. Thank you. Um, so Andrea, I would love for you to just very briefly, um, recap, and I know you've said this on past episodes, but you know, having a reaction to a vaccine, a, a very mild reaction, of course, is expected and it's actually a good thing. Can, can you tell us why? Sure, absolutely. So, you know, vaccines, the whole principle of the vaccine is to mimic the actual disease, um, to trick your immune system into having a response against it so that when you develop that memory immunity, when you have that memory immunity, when you actually encounter the disease in the world, um, you don't 
you won't actually get physically ill. You already have memory immunity and you'll immediately mount a response to stave off that infection. Um, And I think this is really important to keep in mind as we talk about, uh, especially the COVID vaccines coming up. And and of course, we'll do more of that in a future episode. But um, having a reaction, having symptoms or having some sort of physiological response after a vaccination is expected. Some vaccines elicit a more potent response and some have a much more mild response. Um, But regardless, you're going to have some sort of response to it. And that means that the vaccine is working because swelling at the injection site, tenderness, a very low-grade fever, some lethargy, that means that your immune system is is working. It's mounting this response. It's fighting off this, this, um, you know, invader that's masquerading as the actual disease-causing pathogen, um, but you're not at risk of getting the actual illness. Um, So having a reaction to a vaccine is something we should expect. It's always a pleasant surprise when it's milder than you hoped for. I can say the yellow fever vaccine, I had a really, really intense reaction to. Um, but do the, tell. <laughs> just, just, it was a wild ride. Um, you know, it's, okay. it's certain vaccines just, you know, people have really potent immune response to it. And I, I developed a, a fever for a couple of days and I was very fatigued and um, certainly far better than getting yellow fever, which can be fatal. Um, oh but 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 those are things that you should expect. Um, it doesn't mean that you're getting sick from the vaccine. It means your body is mounting an immune response. So let me just recap briefly and please uh, interject if I'm misspeaking at all. Um, okay. So for the, I guess, I don't know, would you say the majority of vaccines that we get, are they... Um, you know, dead, killed bacteria or viruses or? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, we have those four main types. We have inactivated, we have attenuated, we have subunit, we have toxoid vaccines. Um, The Mm -hmm. COVID vaccines look like they might be mRNA, which is a new technology. But again, none of them have active viruses or um, pathogenic viruses in them. Even with the attenuated viruses, they're weakened to the point that they're not causing the disease. They're eliciting a, a an immune response that sometimes looks like mild symptoms of of the disease in question. Got and that it. could be a, a, a light rash at the injection site in the case of something like chickenpox. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. So no, vaccines cannot cause the disease they can, they claim to prevent. Um, if you're if you're receiving a vaccine with dead, killed bacteria or viruses, it's 
literally impossible if you're getting a, a, a live attenuated vaccine. Again, you're not at risk of getting the actual disease, but there might be some mild side effects that could mimic the, the disease. But again, such, such, such a milder form of the actual disease that they are um, preventing. And that having some sort of a mild reaction to a vaccine is good because it tells us that your immune system has been woken up and is actively working to protect you. Is that all accurate? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Okay. That was my very, you know, cliff notes version of, of <laughs> what you were saying. All right, Andrea, I know that you want to debunk this next one. Um this next myth. Can we move on to the next one? Yeah, sure. So the next myth is vaccines have fetal tissue in them. Um, and I think, I think this, this myth, obviously it's, it's not true. Um, there is some technicality that we want to discuss here. So we have to remember how we actually make vaccines and, and especially for viruses, um, for viral diseases, um, viruses require a host cell to grow in. So they have to infect a cell. They have to reproduce. They can't just reproduce freely. They need cells to infect. Um, and so when we have to make a vaccine for a viral pathogen um, that contain intact virus, and that could be attenuated or inactivated, um, we have to grow lots of that virus. And in order to grow lots of that virus, we have to grow them in cells. And so the process of vaccine manufacturing requires the first step, culturing everything. So we grow those cells, we grow those virus in cell culture. Once the virus is grown up in the cells, we then harvest all the virus from the cells. So the cells become these little virus manufacturing, you know, um, factories. Um, and we want to, you know, burst open those cells, harvest all the virus. From there, we purify the the you know, cell culture. So we remove all the cells, all the cell material, we clean everything up, um, and we isolate just the virus or the viral components that we want. And then of course, for your inactivated viruses or your attenuated viruses, they go through processes that weaken them or kill them. Um, and then of course, we go through the actual process of you know, formulation of the vaccine. So everything's been purified out. We have this really pure product. Um, then, of course, we have to package it and store it depending on what type of vaccine it is. And then, of course, it's going to be released batch by batch and be transported for distribution. So we've got a lot of steps involved in vaccine manufacturing processes. And in that very first step called cell culture, um, there are some cell lines. So cell lines are basically immortalized cells that we can use over many, many, many decades. Um, they're, they typically are immortalized because they were cancerous or something's been done to them in the lab that enable us to continually maintain them. Um, so some of these cell lines that we use are technically cells that were isolated from an aborted fetus. So two of these examples we hear a lot about are uh, one called MRC5 and one called WI38. So these are two cell lines. They're not intact fetuses. They're not recent fetal tissue. Um, MRC5s were a cell culture, a cell line that was isolated and harvested in 1966. 
Um, and this was taken from a 14-week fetus that, that was aborted um, by, from a 27-year-old woman. Um, these have been used for decades, since 1966, in, in cell culture, in research. Um, WI-38 is another cell line. Um, this was derived from the lung tissue of a three-month um, fetus that was aborted. And this one was developed in 1962. Um, so again, these have been around for decades. It is not an intact fetus. It was a biopsy of a piece of lung tissue that was taken from a fetal sample years and years and years ago and has been grown in cell culture since then and maintained um, in freezer stock. So the vaccines that we do generate using these types of cell lines are rubella, measles, rabies, polio, hep A, chickenpox, and smallpox vaccines. Now, none of these cells even are present in the vaccine. And the issue comes up because people read the ingredient list. I know, Jess, you and I hear it all the time. I read the ingredient list. There's all these bad things in the vaccine. And the issue is, a vaccine ingredient list includes everything that was involved in the entire manufacturing process and doesn't actually mean they're in the vaccine you're getting injected in your body. The list of the vaccine ingredients includes the cell culture media that they used. So things like, um, you know, I hear often um, fetal bovine serum. That's a protein additive that we add to cell culture to get the cells to grow better. That's also not in your vaccine. Um, so anything involved in growing of the cells that grow the virus, um, the cells themselves, um, other sorts of things that are adjuvants in the vaccine or things that are used in the manufacturing or purification process. So all of these things legally are, are on the ingredient list, but none of those things are actually in the vaccine as you receive it. That is so interesting, Andrew. I was just hanging on your every word. <laughs> Honestly, I'm just sitting here riveted. That that is so fascinating, and I had no idea um, that the 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 cell lines. I don't know if that's the right term. Uh, were developed back in the '60s. Yeah, that is wild. What is that? I'm trying to. Is that 40 years ago? 50 years ago? What year are we in? <laughs> it's, it's 50, 55. Well, 54 for the uh, MRC5s, and it would be uh, 58 for the WI-38s. Um, and those names actually relate to where they were kind of harvested or isolated. So WI actually stands for the Wistar Institute, which is here in Philadelphia, um, a very, very esteemed research facility, um, you know, essentially on Penn campus. That is fascinating. So again, you know, the myth is that vaccines have fetal tissue in them, and you just very clearly debunked. Uh, you know, that is not true. There is no actual fetal tissue in any of the vaccines that that we're giving today. Yeah. And and more than that, you know, we're not using fetal tissue to grow the virus. These are cell lines. They're individual. They're they're a piece of of there were a cell that was harvested from a fetus 50 something years ago. They no longer have any characteristics of a fetus. They are, you know, fibroblasts, meaning their particular cell type. And when we grow them in Petri dishes, essentially. Mm -hmm. So, Andrew, you you bring up a really important uh, point here, how people will often pull up a list of vaccine ingredients and then like use that as, you know, uh, ma making the claim that 
vaccines include poisons and toxins and all kinds of harmful ingredients. So right. I think this is a, a a good time to move on to our next myth. Yeah, definitely. Which is um, the very untrue claim that vaccines contain toxins and harmful ingredients. So I think we should kick this off with a discussion of an ingredient that I hear about all the time, and that's thimerosal. Um, we've actually spoken about this, but I think it's definitely worth recapping. Um, thimerosal is a mercury-based preservative used to prevent contamination of multi-dose vials of vaccines. Um, when I hear about thimerosal, I often hear it, um, you know, people think that there's a link between this particular ingredient, thimerosal, and autism. Uh, and We've spoken at length about about that uh, earlier in this episode, but again, research shows that thimerosal does not cause uh, autism spectrum disorder. Uh, A a 2004 scientific review by the Institute of Medicine concluded that the evidence favors rejection of a causal relationship between thimerosal-containing vaccines and autism. Since then, there have been several studies, again, none of which found any link, I'll say it one more time, between thimerosal-containing vaccines and autism, as well, of course, as we said before, no link between the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine and autism. So actually, between 1999 and 2001, thimerosal was removed, or at least reduced to trace amounts, in all childhood vaccines, except for some flu vaccines. This was done as part of a broader national effort to reduce all types of mercury exposure in children before studies were conducted that determined that thimerosal was not harmful. It was, it was simply done as a precaution. Currently, the only childhood vaccines that contain thimerosal are flu vaccines packaged in multi-dose vials. And there are also thimerosal-free alternatives uh, that are available. So, Andrea, can you maybe just briefly break down um, thimerosal is ethyl mercury, and yeah. I know all mercury is not the same. So, can you? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, I think I think something Jess and I hear a lot is, you know, there's mercury in your vaccines, and people are referring to thimerosal, and thimerosal is is mercury based, as as just mentioned, um, and it's also. Um, it's comprised of ethyl mercury. So all mercury is not the same. So there, there are different types of mercury. Um, and mercury is a naturally occurring element. Uh, we find this in the Earth's crust, air, soil, and water. Lots of different geologic uh, occurrences like volcanic eruptions, rock weathering, coal burning. This causes mercury to be, be released into the environment. Um, and, and once that's released, liquid mercury, which is a, a solid metal, um, this is converted in the environment by bacteria uh, to methylmercury. So methylmercury is distinctly different than ethylmercury, which is the, the thimerosal. Methylmercury uh, makes its way through the food chain, particularly in fish. Um, and, and, at, and actually, it is extremely toxic even at very low levels. Methylmercury is a bad type of mercury compound. Um, and this is the type that you find in, in seafood that you will eat. In thimerosal, this is a different form of mercury called ethylmercury. And this is 
Um, not, not remotely the same in terms of functionality. So there's been a lot of studies comparing ethyl mercury and methyl mercury. They're processed extremely differently in the human body. Um, ethyl mercury, so the thimerosal type of mercury, is broken down and excreted very rapidly, particularly compared to methyl mercury. Um, and ethyl mercury has extremely low toxicity, um, especially compared to methyl mercury. This is very similar um, to ethyl alcohol versus methyl alcohol. So ethyl mercury, methyl mercury have slight chemical composition differences, but they have a very different physiologic effect. Um, and this is the same with ethyl alcohol and methyl alcohol. So ethyl alcohol is the type of alcohol that we have in our alcoholic beverages, ethanol. Um, you know, it does have some toxicity at high doses, um, but generally it's well tolerated and excreted pretty quickly after we consume it. Methyl alcohol or methanol is wood alcohol. It's also found in things like antifreeze. And again, very, very toxic, um, especially compared to ethyl alcohol. So again, slight chemical composition change, very different effect on the body, very different toxicity. It's the same thing we see with thimerosal, very, very low toxicity, very well tolerated and quickly excreted, methylmercury, extremely dangerous. And that's the one that we actually consume uh, by eating, um, especially larger fish like tuna. And why I have to stop myself from eating sushi every single day. <laughs> okay. Can we move on to the next uh, ingredients or anything yeah. else? Okay. No, I, so, think, uh, I think that's great. Okay. So we also hear a lot about formaldehyde uh, and aluminum. So just want to say, yes, you know, of course, it's true that these chemicals are toxic to the human body in certain levels, but only trace amounts of these chemicals are used in vaccines. Uh, in yes. Oh, sorry. Can yeah. I jump in really quick? Because I, yes. I think I think prefacing this section with this okay. statement will really set the stage. So people set it. keep in mind, the dose makes the poison. And as Jess is going to debunk with aluminum formaldehyde, um, you know, you have to keep in mind what that dose is. Anything at a high enough dose can be toxic to people, including even things. water. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I was Sorry. just going to say, no, even water, even things that we tout as being really healthy. If you eat too much or drink too much of a certain thing, it can be very dangerous. So again, the dose makes the poison. I love that you just like, you got really close to the mic when you said that. I love it. <laughs> I love it. You know, it's so true though. It's so true. And that that's such an important detail. Um, so according to the FDA and the CDC, formaldehyde is produced at higher rates by our own bodies, by our own metabolic systems. And there's no scientific evidence that the low levels of this chemical of mercury, which we uh, were talking about before, or, um, or aluminum in vaccines can be harmful. So let's talk about aluminum. So Andrea, can you maybe just explain to us, I know aluminum is used in some vaccines. Can you maybe tell us why it's used? Yeah, sure. And then we could, okay. So, um, so aluminum is used as what we call an adjuvant and an adjuvant is something that is formulated with the, the vaccine itself. So, you know, the, the virus or the viral component of the bacterial component. And what this does is it, um, it helps improve or, or, um, 
uh, accentuate the immune response to the vaccine component. Um, and this is a well-known um, characteristic of aluminum. There's a couple of other adjuvants that we use, but this enables us to use essentially a lower dose of the vaccine component while also stimulating or eliciting a similar potency for the immune response. And this is something that's been used in vaccines for a very long time, for more than 70 years. Um, and it sounds like they're important. You know, they obviously they serve a purpose. We're not yeah. just going to throw <laughs> in these ingredients for no reason. Right. Okay. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, aluminum is the most common metal found in nature. It's in the air, it's in food and things that we drink. Infants get more aluminum through breast milk or formula than they do from vaccines. Most of the aluminum that we take into our bodies is quickly eliminated. Um, Andrew, I pulled some stats here. You could probably speak to this better than I can, but um, I read that not all vaccines contain aluminum, um, but those that do contain a very small amount between 0.125 milligram to 0.625 milligrams per dose. Um, this is much less than what the average person consumes in a day. Uh, an estimated 30 to 50 milligrams of aluminum is consumed by the average person daily, and that's from the things that we eat and drink and medicines that we take. So I think something else that's important to mention, you know, we just talked about ethyl mercury, methyl mercury, and 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 metal mercury, solid, uh, solid elemental mercury. The aluminum adjuvant that we see in vaccines. Um, so some examples are the DTAP, the pneumococcal conjugate, and the hepatitis B vaccines. We have aluminum present. It's not metal aluminum. It's aluminum that's in an ion form with a with a salt. It's a it's basically like the aluminum version of table salt. So table salt is sodium chloride. It's not metal sodium. Um, so it's a similar principle. It's an aluminum salt that is present in, in some of those vaccines. Hmm. Interesting. All right. Let's move on to formaldehyde. So formaldehyde, well, sorry, that was a why <laughs> formaldehyde has been used for decades in vaccines to inactivate viruses and detoxify bacterial toxins, ensuring that they don't result in sickness when injected. So um, the tiny amount which may be left over from these steps in making vaccines has been deemed safe. Um, formaldehyde is actually found in products that we use all the time, like paper towels, mascara and other cosmetics, carpets, upholstery, paint, and felt hip markers, um, as well as in health products such as antihistamines, cough drops, and mouthwash. Um, humans normally have formaldehyde in their bloodstreams at higher levels than is found in vaccines. Andrew, do you want to add anything about the about formaldehyde? Why? It's yeah, I mean, yeah. a lot of a lot of food products we eat. I think you mentioned that um, contain yeah. more formaldehyde than what you would find in any vaccine. Um, including, I, I love the example of a pear. Uh, a pear has. Um, around seven times the maximum uh, dose of formaldehyde that that a, an infant would receive from a vaccine. And that's in a pair that, again, we consider to be quite healthy. 
And of course, Andrea, as you said before, dose matters. Uh, the potential for harm uh, when it comes to formaldehyde or any of these things that we're talking about depends on the amount. Um, as we said, formaldehyde is always present in the human body as part of our natural metabolic process. Um, but long-term repeated exposure to high amounts can overwhelm our system and be harmful. Um, but the amount of formaldehyde in vaccines is very small, uh, most of it being diluted down to residual amounts during the manufacturing process. Um, in fact, the FDA reports there's 50 to 70 times more formaldehyde present in an average newborn baby's body than in a single dose of vaccine. Uh, so basically, in a nutshell, science shows formaldehyde to be harmless. Um, just very briefly, just to talk about the actual amount, um, the highest amount of formaldehyde present in any vaccine is 0.02 milligrams per dose. And again, just thinking about a newborn baby, uh, or I guess in this case, an average two-month-old baby has around 1.1 milligram of formaldehyde circulating in their body with higher naturally occurring amounts for older children. So again, these things are in our body. The, the amounts in vaccines are so trace, so minuscule compared to what's already um, being processed by our met metabolic system. And sorry, you were about to say something. Oh, no, no? I was just going to add <laughs> on at the end that, um, that again, formaldehyde is a situation where, you know, you're going to read it on that ingredient list if you're digging through that. But again, it's used in the vaccine manufacturing process um, to inactivate viruses after they've been grown in cell culture um, and also to ensure that um, toxins for some of these toxoid vaccines are not um, are not detrimental to us. And that purification process pretty much removes um, almost all of it uh, during that, that process. So again, it's listed on the ingredients, but it's, it's not going to be um, really quantifiable in the vaccine itself that you're receiving. Andrea, I'm chuckling to myself here because I'm realizing we, you know, we just spoke for almost an hour and I know we could talk about the topics we've already covered for several more hours, and we were planning on covering at least four more myths. So <laughs> I think it's safe to say that we this needs to be a, a multi-episode topic. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, so on that note, do you want to take us home, Andrea? Yeah. Um, so thanks for joining us today. We hoped you learned a thing or two. And if you like our pod, please share with your friends or family and leave us a review on Apple Podcast. Since we obviously didn't cover all of the common myths and misconceptions about vaccines, we're going to be covering vaccine myths part two on our next episode. Catch you next time on the pod, your trusted source for no nonsense, just science. Yeah, oh, I am a science.